Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. dedicated to Henry Farmer. In the year of the primal force, the dawn of terrestrial birth, man mastered the mammoth and horse, and man was the lord of the earth. He made him an old skin from the heart of a holy tree. He compassed the earth therein, and man was the lord of the sea. He controlled the vigorous steam, he harnessed the lightning for hire, he drove the celestial team, and man was the lord of the fire. Well, 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 episode 79 of Agitators Anonymous. This is Alan Averill. Welcome, greetings, and felicitations, children of technology. Well, this is a sort of pre-recorded episode. Primordial is 30 years old this year. Somehow that happened. Um, I discussed this a little bit in what you're about to hear. Um, And over the remainder of the year, what's left of it, the guts of it, there's going to be a few podcasts a bit discussing various different albums, some of the anniversaries that are coming up. And this is, um, well, this is mainly over on my YouTube channel as a video cast. I'm sort of looking at the album Redemption of the Puritan's Hand because it is 10 years old this year. Um, looking back on the aesthetic, the artwork, the lyric writing, the songwriting, um, all of the situations that were surrounding the recording of the album. It's pretty interesting. So this is the um, audio of that video cast. Go over and have a look for Alan Averill on YouTube. You can find my YouTube channel. All sorts of other things going on there. Some interesting chats with all sorts of other bands. Um, metal Salvage, which is me and Joe from Gamma Bomb, just boozing and talking nonsense about heavy metal. This kind of thing. So I am about to head out on the first small tour with Dread Sovereign in, um, well... I suppose, since just before the pandemic. So there will no doubt be some interesting um, stuff on podcasts to come about that, about my experiences, about um, how things are settling back in, or are they, or the rules, the restrictions, all of those kind of things. What hoops do we have to jump through or not jump through, as the case may be, um, as the live music and industry and art, I suppose, in general, in the public sphere, um, gets up on its knees from its supine dead 
play dead position uh, and we'll see if it can get back on its feet next year who knows um certainly maybe not in this country but maybe in the country you are from who knows all right so the podcast is sponsored by metalblade.com use the promo code aa podcast in north america you can get 10% off and then eisenwald records www.eisenton.de and .com and you can go over there and you can get free shipping all right my friends like I said, this one is a bit of an unusual podcast, something of a stopgap, but hopefully it should be pretty interesting. Um, as Redemption was quite a milestone album on some level in our career and one of my very favorites. All right, here's me discussing Redemption at the Puritan's Hand. So. This is the seventh Primordial album. This is Redemption at the Puritan's Hand. If you're listening to this on just a normal, uh, the normal podcast platforms, well, that's what I'm going to be talking about. This is the 30th anniversary of the band somehow. Um, I don't know quite how that happened, but it did. And if you're watching on YouTube, then this will just be a short... Well, we'll see how it's short, depending on my memory or lack of thereof. Um, about the seventh primordial album, Redemption of the Puritans. And like I said, it's the 30th anniversary of the band, um, which goes back to August 1991, when I answered an ad in the local metal shop, which was covered over with a poster about an hour later, and I was the only person who called up, um, Paul. And I think I got the job because I had a cool shirt and long hair, and I think also because nobody else ever um, called. And the rest, as they say, is history. Um, Paul and Kieran have been playing together since the end of 87, but, you know, just as little kids, I guess. Young teenagers, 13 and 15, so the band, I suppose you could say proper, if that's the right phrase, starts in 1991. So yes, this is the 30th anniversary. Lots of other bands have been having the same thing, Catatonia, Marduk, etc. Um, it's about that time, that vintage. Um, but oddly enough, we all started when we were pretty young, in our mid-teens, I was 16 at least, so we aren't actually, oddly enough, that old. Well, you might think we're old. It really depends on, I suppose, how young or old you are. Right, enough nonsense. Let's stay, Let's have a look. The seventh primordial album, Redemption of the Puritan's Hand. So voted by the journalists of Legacy with the highest soundcheck score ever, which therefore is, inc is I was about to say inconclusive, but is conclusive proof that this is the greatest album of all time. Yes, I thank you. Um, no. All right. Why is it white, first off? Well, the reason why I made the cover white, and believe me, there was quite some arguing about it being white, is because A, I wanted it to stand out. I wanted it to stand out on the rack, stand out, uh, look to look kind of iconic and in a very simple fashion, like old 80s metal records. But the main reason is because the overarching theme is religion, is faith, uh, as white as the driven snow. It's about redemption. It's about Puritanism, obviously, hence the title. It's about the redemptive process. It's about how those without faith sometimes look at those with, sometimes with a sort of unacknowledged jealousy on some level because it gives their life meaning. It's about how we try and make sense of the, the structure as our place in the universe and the world, all that kind of stuff. So that's the reason I chose white. There's no other reason. Um, it's basically to make the album stand out and to look, as I said, pure as the driven snow. Um, because the most of the songs, well, all of the songs have elements of 
religious um, faith-based imagery throughout them. Um, the title was again another bone of contention. It was argued over, and maybe um, I could have just called it, you know, Puritan's Redemption or something like this. And the idea is that um, we seek sometimes redemption at the hands of the puritanical, or those who are puritanical tend to be the driving agents in culture, in society, in the movement of society. And so sometimes you seek redemption at their hands. I think, if I remember correctly, is what I was trying to say. Um, I suppose some element of that is, as I said, the concept that um, faith gives meaning. And the structures of faith that we place around what otherwise would potentially be the understanding that you were just on a rock hurtling through space by chance, um, which seems too, uh, too vast a concept for most of us to gather, me included, hence why I made an album questioning the whole thing. I'm not really questioning that, not questioning science, of course, but um, just trying to understand the role that faith plays in our understanding of our own mortality. The album is more or less about moving into middle age, um, it's about um, getting older, it's about um, responsibilities, it's about acknowledging your fuck-ups, but I'll get to that in due time with the lyrics. It was recorded um, in about two weeks in full studios in Wales in two sessions. To the Nameless Dead went um, ridiculously easy. We tend to have every other album is a nightmare and every other one is um, proves to be to go relatively smoothly. To the Nameless Dead was too smooth. It was a summer recording where it was sit out in the sunshine afterwards. It went in 10 days, recorded and mixed, if I'm not incorrect, which allows for the travel back. This was done in two separate um, sessions, but it was done in the winter of 2011, or would it be 2010? I think it was maybe the winter of 2010, which was uh, one of the worst, harshest winters, I think, that there ever was um, across Ireland and the United Kingdom. And Wales was no different. The old Foles studios, um, while ha being full of charm and all that kind of stuff, let's just say it worked better during the summer. Winter was pretty harsh. And we almost nearly didn't get out of the studio. The, the snow was knee-high. And we almost couldn't even get the car out of the, um, the rather steep driveway to even get to the ferry port to take the ferry back to Ireland. We were almost stuck there. And it was le leading up to Christmas. Um, it was also the time of the swine flu epidemic, um, which will play its part, as I'll talk about. But um, the album was made under much duress, much stress, much more confrontation within the band. There was a lot more arguments. There was, um, you know, one of the best ways to record, however, that said, is to be able to take home your first session, to mull it over, to go back and go, right, okay, what could be better or worse about this? What could we change? And then in your second session, you come back with new ideas. It can often be a very bad idea to just mix um, straight after, like to go from recording straight to mixing, which is not quite what we did, but it is what ended up more or less happening. No matter how much time you have, you invariably always run out of time. Um, the imagery on the back I found in a library up in Edinburgh, along with all the other imagery, which I'll get to. Paul McCarroll at Unhinged Art did a great job in managing to translate the rather the simplistic nature of the art. Um, but again, it's all religious imagery. We'll go through the pictures and the lyrics. Uh, but 
the stress of recording this album was really, to be honest, personally huge because I think I got um, a touch of swine flu when I made this. Swine flu was um, sort of swilling around the, uh, thank you, uh, around the country. And at the start of the second session, we're supposed to start on the Monday. I got there on the Saturday or the Sunday. And by start, and by on Sunday, I was going to do the vocals. Very often when you're singing, you're left to add your bit about three quarters of the way through. Everyone else has to track drums and bass and guitars. And because the songs are not always, not always fully formed, you're not sure where harmonies are. So very often with singing, you're kind of sitting around cheerleading or reading a book or being annoying or all three. Um, or you end up being the voluntary chef. Um, who knew? I should have been, should have been filming that for YouTube. Uh, probably would have get more views than everything else I do. But however, um, and by the Sunday, I started to get very sick. And I could tell it was not just sick, but really, really, really sick. Um, I had a massive asthma attack, which is something like I hadn't had in 15 years, more. Could, couldn't even walk 10 yards, couldn't go up the stairs. The, the old farmyard was dusty and cold and fine if you're in fine fettle and it's summer. But as I got progressively sicker, um, I was going to sleep at 6, 7, 8 in the morning, sleeping all the way through the day and waking up in the evening being able to, you know, do a bit of singing mainly from like six to about nine um, while up to my eyeballs and whatever drugs the local um, NHS doctor managed to prescribe me. I got some sort of temporary residence permit form, which allowed me to be able to get all sorts of other extra concoctions. But I was sick, really, really sick. So sick, in fact, that some of these songs I don't really remember exactly doing. I must have been, as I said, pumped to the gills with various evil concoction of energy drinks and all sorts of um, flu and pain medication. The sickest I've ever been. However, the results, somehow, um, this is one of my very favorite primordial albums. It maybe went a little bit, I'm not sure, maybe it didn't go under the radar, certainly not in Germany, but after To The Name Was Dead um, was such a, you know, a success, I guess. Um, the follow-up in theoretically should have been pretty difficult, but I remember writing the songs with relative ease, or we had a lot of ideas, lots of riffs, and then we didn't leave it quite as long, you know, that long from um, To The Name Is Dead, I mean, the usual three years or something like that, which maybe seems a long time to some people, but you have to remember a band like Primordial isn't professional, so everybody's working and having their own lives um, at the same time. It's not like we were a professional band being able to take time off to go on a songwriting retreat or anything like that. You know, not to be complaining because that is the fate of most modern musicians because no one really makes a living until you get to a Monomarth Behemoth type size, but I digress. So Chris Fielding recorded it in full. Um, the production is punchy, powerful, yet raw, still has our character to it. I do remember as we begin to look at the songs, um, I think the very first pressing of No Grave is Deep Enough uh, on vinyl might have a slightly different mix because we overmixed No Grave is Deep Enough. When you're mixing, well, I should explain that, it had to be re, uh, resent, I think, to the pressing plant. But there's a US version, I think, which is in a few hundred, which has a slightly different version of No Grave is Deep Enough. Um, the bass drums are a little bit louder. I think me and Paul, who mixed it, kind of pushed it to the limit. And so we had to redress that with a slight retouching. And then it was sent again to remaster. We just, I think, made the 
cutoff date by a day or two, but something to do with the US needing it uh, quicker, that's what happened. Um, so the intro to No Grave is Deep Enough is actually Paul hitting um, an old metal tub or bath that's in his back garden with a hammer or something. Sorry for ruining the mystery if that ruins some of the mystery for you, but yes, I can just imagine him in his back garden hitting this old metal tub. And so we sort of concocted that with a drone, a sort of intro from nothing really. Um, have you ever noticed that, you know, all of the God's children, they all have to die. You say you don't want to run and hide, a place that no one knows. Secrets. Um, the vocal pattern of No Grave is Deep Enough is almost the same as I Want to Be Somebody by Wasp. Shh, don't tell anybody that. Um, but No Grave is Deep Enough, again, a, a great live song. It's fast, it's double pedal, it's got our 6-8 signature running through it. It's a power song, hard song to sing, very high when you begin the show. Um, and it can really take it out of you if you haven't done some warm-ups or prepared. Um, but yeah, it starts off a great opener, like comes out of the traps really fast from the start. And the tones, as I said, are dynamic. Chris got the feeling of us all playing in a room live together. And he managed to capture the tension that was there, I think, even if it's unacknowledged really by the band. But there was quite a lot of arguments. There was quite a lot of um, discussions going on about things that did, we didn't seem to get into into The Nameless Dead. There was quite a lot of... Like I said, when you're mixing, you've got to be on your game. You've got to be feeling positive and energetic and well-slept because you, you're going to hear the same thing over and over and over and over again. And I remember the internet didn't really work very well and we were sending files back across. They were coming back across. Um, no, you need to change this. It's four or five hours later. You've moved ahead. You've only got three or four days to mix. Um, and so this was the cause of a lot of tension about the record. There are, um, I suppose, unmixed demos somewhere of the record. I think, if I'm not incorrect, I think that Kieran prefers. Sorry, Kieran, for putting words in your mouth. If that is not true, which maybe we must unearth to have a listen to at some stage. I don't know if they're worth posting on Spotify or something for anybody who wants to hear them. Um, but I remember them being good as well. They were different, and they were more raw. But No Grave, didn't, no Grave is Deep Enough starts really well out of the traps, in my opinion. It's a great album opener, it's full of pace, energy, it sounds full of vibrancy and life. Um, Lane with the Wolf is based on Herman Hess, Steppenwolf, a book I would recommend any man approaching middle age to read, as it speaks a lot to, um, I suppose, the man-child within us all that avoids responsibility, the, the heart of darkness at the heart, you know, right at the core of um, some elements of masculinity, that kind of thing. If I haven't misread you, Mr. Hess, um, and also, I just wanted to write a song with Wolf in the title, but Herman S. Steppenwolf was quite a um, profound book at this moment. I remember being really quite awestruck by it, and I just thought I need to um, somehow write a song which encapsulates some mood of this. And I, it's one of my very favourite primordial songs. I think it's one of my best lyrics. I think we hit the atmosphere really, really right. The production is great. The driving part in the middle with the snare rolls, and the guitar harmonies, it's very dark. Um, one of my very favorite primordial songs. In fact, it's one of the, I suppose, two of my very favorite primordial songs ever are on this particular record. But Lane with the Wolf, I think, is uh, a song that will sort of outlive us. Well, I would hope so. Um, well, I suppose it depends how long we live, doesn't it? Well, 
Bloody Dead Unbowed starts out, well, this is the vinyl I'm looking at, of course, so uh, you won't see that on the podcast. Um, however, Bloody Dead Unbowed was a strange song. This is Mick's song. Um, he wrote this song. And uh, so it has, of course, great attention to detail to the harmonies and the tempos and all that kind of thing, um, as Mick's songs always do. But we were having an argument about the lyrics, you know, no 4am whiskey soaked wisdom. Um, and I seem to remember there were objections about the sort of open uh, reference to the booze, the drink, um, and the sort of cliches of Irishism that maybe we were, maybe I was leaning into. But then, of course, we'd stay up till four in the morning, getting pissed and arguing. And, you know, none of us can deny that the booze has had a part to play in all our lives. And so when I really sat and thought about it, it felt that the lyrics of Bloody Dead and Bad, which acknowledge mistakes. There's a few apologies in there to a few people. Um, there is an, an acknowledgement of um, vulnerability, frailty, weakness, um, your moments of mental weakness, physical weakness, and the decisions you make at 4am, all wrapped up in this sort of um, country narrative. Because I was really at the, at the time into Hank Williams and... Um, Waylon Jennings and, you know, getting into country stuff and especially the lyrics and the phrasings and the turn of phrase. And what really struck me was the redemptive quality at the heart of um, some of the country narrative, which was the transgression, which eventually um, the transgressor eventually comes good by acknowledging his own flaws, so to say. And that was really inspiring. So Bloody Dead and Bowed was one of those sort of... Um, booze-ridden, sodden kind of um, songs where you acknowledge the, your fuck-ups or your mistakes. But, you know, you acknowledge them, but you don't apologize for being human. You don't apologize for um, living, all that kind of thing. So, you know, it's, it's a very, it's a song that has a very great resonance live. People really, really like it, I think, because they see themselves in the lyrics. Um, and that's why it was deliberately written like that for um, people to be able to identify themselves within the lyrical narrative. Um, I don't, I always say Primordial is about everybody who's in the room with us when we play a show against everything that's outside fundamentally, that you should come with us on that journey or whatever you want to call it. Not us against you in the crowd, you know, um, unless you fling someone at me or something or not. However, um, yeah, Bloody Dead and Bowed was that kind of us saying to the, you know, me saying to the, you know, to the, to the crowd, I'm a fuck up. We're all fuck ups. Let's just have a song about the times we fucked up, but still celebrate being human. Um, but yet the redemptive arc is one, one that comes across all of the album. God's Old Snake is about Alistair Crowley, plain and simple. That's him in the middle. Some people thought it was Winston Churchill, which I find really perplexing. Although they both sound kind of similar, um, it's not. It's Alistair. And I suppose what I wanted to get into this song was a sort of um, almost um, overblown horror, a sort of biblical horror in the language, but to sort of get across this idea of these Victorian hermetic societies, um, whether it was Yeats looking to Maud Gone. The, um, the Golden Dawn with Crowley, or the Blavatsky's, the mediumistic, the power that mediums held over this superstitious Victorian society. 
um, I wanted to sort of bring out in some sort of visual language, um, but just also make it horror-filled as well. And um, the music is perfect for this. Kieran did. I, I think this is one of those syncopations where the music, lyrics and music fit really, really perfectly. I'm not sure how I managed to get this black metal voice out. I don't know if that voice exists anymore. Um, but the, especially the rising um, moments at the end of the song, I think, are uh, really, really great. And they really, really fit in with the lyrics. Um, yeah, it's a good song. It's really worth a or maybe a live return to or something like this. So Mouth of Judas, this is my other really, really favorite um, primordial song on this record. Um, I just think it has a really, really great structural dynamic and rises to the end where once the song takes off. Um, I guess, guess, guess the idea for the lyrics originally was, I guess this Greek myth where a king goes off to war and leaves his wife the queen behind, and he says, when I return, the sails will be white um, to show my victory, or black for my defeat. And I think what happens is that on their victory, they return, and the crew and the king get pissed up, and he forgets to lower their white sail and put the black sail up, or something like this. I should have really probably looked into this to research it, but I'm not sure I researched it for the lyric. Um, and so they return to shore with the black sail, and the queen hurls herself off the cliff. And I just liked that imagery. My ship has the blackest sails and no wind to sail, etc., etc. And the idea of gristled knuckle. Um, it's a kind of like language that brings, that brings to mind. It sounds like how it feels gristled knuckle or gnarled and, you know, this kind of very visceral and emotive um, language that sounds... What is that, anomatopoeia? I'm not sure. You can put it in the comments, whether it is or not, where what you're singing about sounds like what you're describing and linguistically. Mouth of Judas, yeah, and then as it rises, it has a callback with the poem in the middle, you know, to God's old snake, or God's old snake at the end of the bit in the middle. And then it rises, I suppose, to the religious tension in at the end, which is Cain and Abel and the first murder of men as one lifts the rock to the other and beats him and that's i call that the first murder of men and this is again a hark back to the religious imagery again one of my very favorite songs to play um very very favorite the black hundred um sometimes people misunderstand this song this was partly inspired by a trip to the occupation museum in vilnius in lithuania and a poem that is above the door uh, that i can't remember uh, but it was that directly inspired the lyrics and it's about I suppose the idea that the Black 100 were, um, I suppose, a list compiled by the Bolsheviks of the 100 religious leaders or priests they wanted to um, murder. And um, as they were doing their pogroms and purges. And if your name was on that list, you're in trouble. And so the idea of the song is basically about um, the attempt by uh, atheism in communism in this instance to eradicate faith and religion and how religion was driven I suppose in a sense underground and I wanted to get I suppose I've been reading Solzhenitsyn so I wanted to get a sense of some of the um, the lyrics at the time and you can see um, here there is no God he is ground to dust in the death machine of industry the iron hearse sent on bitter tracks to the gulag 
suffering forged between the hammer and sickle, the sorrow of men's hearts is a broken people. Um, yeah, like heavy stuff, you know, that's, <laughs> we certainly don't do light relief. <laughs> but I wanted to get across the absolute horror that was at the heart of um, what I read in um, Solzhenitsyn and what I read about this, you know, this era of history. And um, I think the Black Hundred sort of has a very rhythmic feel. The start of it, I seem, I kind of reminded me of somehow being on a train to the Gulag, the jigga, 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 that kind of movement of the um, wheels and the along the tracks with the drum beat or something. Um, not my favorite song on the record, but I think a good song. Um, I'm not sure that we've ever played it live. Maybe we played it at the release show. A lot of people misunderstand the lyric. They think it's um, an anti-communist song. Um, not necessarily. It's mainly about the, the challenge between faith and secularism. Um, but also, you know, of course, it clearly uses the horror of the gulag as the backdrop for that. And um, Puritan's Hand is a, is a um, dark, slow-moving song. Uh, I went to, uh, this was inspired by a trip to a, um, a monastery in northern Spain, very quite high in the hills. He went up on a vinicular, on a cable car, and had to climb quite a long way up to this um, church, which I probably should have thought of the name of, um, San something, obviously. Um, we, but it had a very famous black Madonna in the church. And the whole um, imagery of the lyrics, because the lyrics aren't really about many more, much more than observing the religious. And it was just this moment where um, I was just kind of standing outside this church and the nuns were walking by me with their prayer beads and the, the look one of them gave me. Um, and I just thought, if I can capture that somehow, that look in words um, and make some sort of song about it. So the song isn't really about very much, even though it is kind of, you know, is what inspired the title. It's just, I suppose, it's, an, it's, the, it's how we look at the pious, how we look at Puritanism, that kind of thing. Um, good song, good song. Uh, interesting to play live, maybe again. And then... The one song that kind of breaks the format is Death of the Gods, because this has a little bit of modern politics in it. Don't forget the album was set to the backdrop recording of um, the financial bailout, the, you know, the crash of 2008, and at the time what um, seemed to be happening in Ireland. And so uh, the idea is that um, kind of a bit like For What Died the Sons of Roisin, which won't mean much to anybody outside of Ireland, but it was more like... Um, the people who gave their sacrifice, their lives for the Republic 100 years ago, how, what would be their feelings of how the country was being governed or run into the ground. But what I was trying to really get at was how, um, how people become um, myth, the, the, the aspiring to change the world, the laying down your life for a cause, and how... Um, that takes on religious context or religious connotation, or people end up eulogizing it as they would some somebody religious. And so I peppered the start of the song with Greek Roman gods, the fall of the Senate, dramatic language, um, you know, uh, you know, you you know you were new the day you were gonna die from the moment you were born. 
um, moving through Greek Roman a Christian sort of imagery um, and ending with um, people who are venerated as I suppose as demigods in Irish the pantheon of Irish um, immediate history uh, it seems like an odd mix and uh, maybe it is but what I was trying to get across at the, for the, the first two-thirds of the song was this dramatic language of how every empire falls um, the syntax of language around the gods and the, the names we give them and then maybe about how we may aspire to that as people or maybe we don't aspire but we end up being venerated as such um, it's a, I, I'm not quite sure that I quite achieved what I set out to do lyrically with that song does it make sense? Does it not make sense? I'm not really sure. Um, certainly, it's a it's another song written by Mick. Uh, it's it has it's very dynamic. I think when the snare comes in at the start and rolls in, um, it's just a great riff. And the moment where the pitch the pitch ugh, come on the um, uh, the notes shift in the middle uh, down after the first two verses and the first two choruses, you know you know the moment. Among thieves, liars, and murderers, whatever. That's one of my favorite moments in a whole album. That Just that shift in tone and pitch, I think, is really sublime. Um, and that's it. That's the, that's the eight songs. Um, I think with Primordia, what we always tried to do was to give everything character and personality to put so that you could listen and put a name to every tune that you heard without fail. And I think that this album succeeds in that um, every to me at least you know the it's 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 every song has a distinct personality and it's got it's it's memorable the inlay again completely white old various religious imagery from we've got some William Blake here um, we've got some inquisition style woodcuts um, all very simple and this is exactly what I wanted Paul at Unhinged did this really he really did this uh, well I mean I sourced most of the images just rooting around in old books and stuff like this um, the the hand imagery in the middle uh, became the sort of uh, signifier for this record on backdrops and stuff like that and we played live um, and I think that um, there's a certain iconic quality to using white that is was contradictory to most metal of the time um, most things were garish photoshop cover the inlay has one of my favorite band shots we ever did where is Kieran there he is um, in the Sally Gap up in the Wicklow Mountains we just caught the light Gareth Averill did it it's a great photo the whole photo session is great um, and he the whole he caught the light perfectly and it's one of my favorite band photos that we ever did really sort of captures the mood of the record you know um so there you kind of have it redemption at the puritan's hand is it my favorite promoter record i'm not sure it's possible certainly has some of my favorite songs on it without a doubt it has a i think a very rich and dark sort of personality it's a bit more introspective and brooding maybe than um, to the Nameless Dead before it, which is a bit more rabble-rousing and a bit more heavy metal. Um, but I, it has some of my favourite primordial moments on it, without a doubt. And it's 10 years old this year, so go and have a listen to it and let me know your comments, your favourite moments, 
um, maybe a live show that you liked or a song you like or a lyric or something like this and um, go and take a listen. I think it's worth it. Happy birthday, 10 years to redemption at the Puritan's hand, my friends. Let's put it over here. All right. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.